All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At Close of Business, News Briefing. Good afternoon and welcome to At Close of Business. I'm Jordan Murray with your Friday afternoon headlines. BHP Iron Ore Chief Brandon Craig has succeeded Fiona Hick as President of the Chamber of Minerals and Energy of WA. Mr Craig has been BHP WA Iron Ore President since October of 2020. His appointment was announced at CMEWA's annual general meeting, where Newmont Australia Regional Chief Financial Officer Felicity Hughes and Development Managing Director Bill Beeman were also reappointed as Vice Presidents. Ms Hick was appointed CMEWA President in April 2021, while she was Woodside Energy Executive Vice President of Operations. CMEWA announced Ms Hick stepped down as President after two years in the role. Ms Hick started as Chief Executive of Fortescue Metals in February. And Woodside Energy's annual general meeting was largely dominated by a cohort of discontented shareholders who aired grievances with the company's climate policy by voting against the board. A motion to re-elect Woodside non-executive director Ian McFarlane, a former Federal Resources Minister, was opposed by 34% of shareholders present at today's AGM. It comes as the group faces growing pressure from a portion of its shareholder base about its climate strategy. You can read more about today's AGM on businessnews.com.au. Coming up next, I speak with senior journalist Matt McKenzie about the stories that have mattered most to us in our time with business news. Edge is Western Australia's award-winning and luxury apartment developer. We're setting a benchmark for visionary living, building vibrant communities of like-minded residents in highly sought-after locations. It's the foundation of everything we do. From stunning beachfront living in Cottesloe and Scarborough to breathtaking city views from the river's edge in Applecross and South Perth. Find out more about our premium developments at edgevl.com.au. Welcome back to our close of business. I'm Jordan Murray today, joined by senior journalist Matt McKenzie for what I must admit to listeners is the final time on our close of business. Matt, are you sombre, sad or reflecting on today's episode at all? It's bittersweet, Jordan, to be here. It is bittersweet. We are moving on to new ventures in the future, in the very near future, and you'll find out about that uh, in the coming weeks. But that's not what we're talking about today. Today we're reflecting on our personal time at Business News, some of the stories it's intersected with, and some of our proudest achievements in that time. I thought it might be an interesting exercise, Matt, to ask you about your first memory of me when I joined Business News. (laughs) See, you didn't give me notice of that. No, I didn't. Um, can I be honest? My my, dis- I don't know if this is the first memory, but I remember uh, after the Rise Awards, um, I was up there speaking, and I remember I was in the stairwell afterwards, and I was really freaking out about whether I'd done a good job. And you were like, "Oh yeah, you did a good job, but you messed up this one word." And I can't remember what the word was, and I was like, "Wow, he's a he's a very he's a detail oriented critic, I guess." Pedant. But the the thing that um, that I would remark about you, Jordan, um, is a tremendous knowledge, right? A tremendous general knowledge and intellect. Um, and that, you know, is from as wide as, you know, probably 80s rock bands right through to uh, US senators, a great asset on a quiz night team. But also I think it's really important. I love to, I love to see journalists that really think about issues in depth. And, you know, you and I don't always agree on things, but the interesting thing about it is in many ways 
even when we disagree, we still agree. You know what I'm saying? Like we're just approaching issues from a different direction. So perhaps that's what's made the Friday episodes rate so highly. Indeed. Beautiful ratings, some of the best you've ever seen. Likewise, I think we do share a, a taste for the analytical, don't we? And I think at times throughout our progression in our career, it, I don't want to say it's been a failing, but I guess it's been something that we've had to learn is to probably be a bit more of a hard-nosed journalist as opposed to someone who wants to think about an issue. But we haven't lost that. And certainly in having Friday episodes about close of business, we've been able to explore issues extensively, get into them, uh, explore them with some nuance as well. Uh, and if I can remark upon you, I do remember that evening. And I do remember that if memory serves, people were very loud in the audience. Oh, yeah. And they were being very... Uh, uh, very disruptive, and you did very well to quell them and to get them on side. So <laughs> it's a testament to your MC abilities, which, of course, if people have been to any of our events, they would have seen uh, your fantastic performances there. You're never nerve-wracked, which I think, even when I've addressed events before, I've been very, very nerve-wracked, and I think any journalist here has been uh, of similar inclination. So I am nervous, I just hide it. Well, you hide it very well. Thank you. And you certainly deserve commendation for that. Now, on the personal reflections and on to the professional reflections. Matt, you started in 2014. That's right. Back then, what was the first major story that you wrote? Because I understand that it was actually a, quite a momentous little story that you'd put together at the time. Yeah, that's right. Wow, we're getting straight into the straight into the heavy stuff. So this was um, the uh, UWA Student Guild. I'll just get my notes here. And I want to be very careful to, to read off so I don't uh, get anyone into any trouble. But uh, we wrote a story, and it ended up going national. In fact, I wrote this about a um, then-alleged uh, theft or irregularity at the UWA Student Guild, which was particularly intense for me because I was a former president of it. Um, and it took a lot of work to get this together. And I'm a big believer that... Um, I, I'm a big believer that this may never have been uncovered to the public if it wasn't for our reporting on it. It took a bit of a personal toll on me too. But what I can say is that... Um, we later wrote that the staff member who stole around $560,000 was sentenced to a four-year jail term uh, later on. So not easy. Um, and it, is, it said uh, in the story, which I recall was, was written off the, um, the judgment or the sentencing remarks, that the, the offending had, had been happening for several years. Uh, and that was, yeah, it was, it was intense for me because I was only a few months out of university um, and I just wanted to do the right thing. I mean, you've got to you've got to highlight that sort of behaviour. That's what journalism's all about. But of course, it was it was difficult for me having having just been at university and having been formally involved in, in the Guild. Um, and on a personal note, you know, there were people that went, that was one of the stories, one of the first stories from Business News that I, that I know of that really went viral on social media. And there were people, people who I knew who sort of said, oh, well, you know, this guy's just biased, so you can't believe him, which was quite hurtful, actually, to be honest with you, for a young, for a young 24-year-old Matt McKenzie starting a career in journalism, but as we say, there was a there was a verdict in the end and and a sentence. Um, but wow, uh, the other one was Tony Galati. Who remembers the the potato wars, the potato monopoly? And I was just going back today to have a look at some of the details, and I'll never forget this. I was in this interview with Tony Galati, and probably one of the this would have been maybe four or five months after the um, the guild fraud thing, and he said to me, "I'd rather go to jail than stop doing what I love." That quote has always stayed with me because that is a cracker. And I remember, you know, I, to be truthful, listeners, I'm not a, I, I wasn't a great writer back then. And even now, sometimes I struggle to, to really, you know, nail a good writing. But I knew right then, I said, gee, that is, that's a cracker. So uh, just going back over some of, the, some of my reflections from the potato wars, as it were, 
In this article I read, I, I remembered, I was reminded that I interviewed someone called Jim Turley from the Potato Growers Association. I remember being on the phone to him for a very long time and I, the recording was lost. I lost the recording. I don't know what happened to it, but it was a classic because I was kind of taking this free market perspective and he was, we were just sort of going back and forth. This is a quote from the article. Excess potatoes should be dumped, he said. We don't want to lower the price. We're already the cheapest price in Australia. So people will remember then that there was a lot of coverage about this topic. And I like to say that other big outlets around town followed up my story that he'd rather go to jail. And eventually the industry was deregulated. And I think a lot of the coverage focused on, oh, you could be, um, you know, uh, the police could catch you 50 kilograms of potatoes. You can't do that without a license, all that sort of stuff. And it was kind of on how it was archaic and it was Soviet style and everything else. But I like to think that we really provided the intellectual underpinning on this argument. Um, because here are some interesting facts. It was half a million dollars to have a license to grow potatoes, a 20% levy or tax on every potato you sold, and every year you had to buy entitlements, right? So um, that was a very highly regulated industry, um, and people would say, well, it benefited the growers. But no, it didn't, because as I think we revealed this some months later, half the potato growers in the industry had left over the past 15 years. So it wasn't working for growers and it wasn't working for customers. And I'm sure I remember that conversation from Mr. Turley and he said, oh, yeah, but, you know, we want the price to be steady and we don't want the price to go up and down. If an old woman's buying potatoes, she doesn't want the price to be changing. And I said, to be honest with you, the price is, you know, every day, every week, the supermarkets have discount on this, discount on this, that. Believe you me, people can deal with it. People aren't overwhelmed by the idea of things being on special. And so this was a system that benefited just a, a small number of farmers it kept every other farmer out from being able to grow potatoes it meant i mean literally when you had an oversupply of potatoes people talking about just dumping them and throwing them away i mean it was just it was just a terrible terrible system and i you know people know me i'm a lover of the what good things the market can do you know within reason of course um and uh, that was it was wonderful to be involved in that back in the day jordan what about you what were your some of, what were your some of your earliest hits <laughs> I'm reminded of, uh, as you're talking about that, Rick Mazza from the Shooters, yeah. Fishers and Farmers Party, who I believe you spoke to, uh, I mean, the potato Yeah, I think was. so. I wrote something about what he said. I don't know if we spoke or if it was email or whatever, yeah. Right, yeah, because I, I recall interviewing him. I never used the interview, but it was about um, the dispute, or not the dispute, but the territorial, uh, political territorial fight that was occurring between the National Party and the Shooters in New South Wales. Yeah. And whether or not we might see that here in Western Australia, and of course that never came to bear because... The National Party's more relevant than it's ever been. It's leading the opposition here in Western Australia. True. And I think before I came in today, I was reflecting on the way in which the political landscape has changed so significantly in WA since I started with business news. Um, so, Matt, when, when you joined business news, I, I couldn't help but reflect that it would have been in about June of 2014. That's right. Yeah, 100% right. So that was about 18 months after Mitt Romney was defeated <laughs> in the US presidential election. It was also a few months before the iron ore price absolutely <laughs> tanked. <laughs> More relevant to this discussion. <laughs> but I just think that that's a, it's an amusing way in which politics has changed, you know, in the sense that back in 2012, obviously, yeah. in the US, Mitt Romney was the standard bearer and the bearer of all evils in US yeah, politics. Yeah, he was... It was the wow. Everyone hated him, you know. Or, or I shouldn't say everyone hated him because I liked him, but, but, <laughs> but people would would so criticise him as being oh he's just terrible, he's just terrible. Uh, from the left would criticise him as just being terrible. And wow, you know, hasn't the world changed in terms of what <laughs> <laughs> what people don't like in politics? Sorry, go on. Jordan. Well, I was thinking back to when I started. So it was 2019. I think it was about a month after the federal election. I recall ahead of that election, or I should say, in the aftermath of it, in which the coalition was re-elected. 
feeling as if the Liberal Party at that point, at a federal level, really lacked much of a big vision for Australia and a big uh, policy handbook for Australia beyond the uh, income tax reforms. And then we came into the pandemic about a year afterwards, and I thought with the introduction of the wage subsidy schemes and a handful of other uh, interventionist programs that this was a government that had really risen to the occasion. And, of course, a year later or two years later, they lost that election Mm. to Labor, and now we have a Labor government. And I think it's just interesting reflecting on what was a very short period of time and the way in which politics changed in that period of time. Because when you think about it, three years isn't really that long. No, It encompasses 75% of my time here at Business News. But it's not that significant that you would expect such significant changes in the way in which people debate issues and the way that they uh, give salience to certain issues. But certainly it appears that that was significant time for people to do exactly that. So I think it's really remarkable the way in which the debate has changed over those three years. And it makes me think of how the debate will change in the two years uh, coming ahead of the next federal election. And, of course, I had to think about the state election as well, which was in the middle of my tenure here. So I came in at about 2019 when Labor was only moderately popular by its current standards. <laughs> yeah. It only had it 40 was, seats. It was the highest win you'd ever seen in 2017. <laughs> and, boy, did it just even get better for them. Well, Darling Range had been lost a year earlier, I believe, after Barry Urban's resignation. And there was a pretty significant significant swing back to the Mm. Liberal Party um, after that. And I don't know why that was. Maybe it was just due to some uh, first-term popularity wearing off a year in, or maybe it was just due to the circumstances of uh, Barry Irvin's resignation. But obviously reflecting back to 2021 when, Matt, the numbers I was seeing come through on the ABC were making my head spin. They were the biggest numbers I'd ever seen. You know, seats going for 80%, 85% on TPP. It was just insanity. Not 85%, 75%. It it was insane to think that those numbers were even possible. And it's probably at such a point right now where a lot of people think that maybe we'll see that again in 2025. But I just caution people, based on my experience in a very limited time, these things can change. So again, very interested to see how things change in 2025 when that election comes up. In terms of particular stories, though, I've written in this time, um, you triggered my thinking about my interactions with the state government Mm. in that time, particularly some of the most notable ministers. And there was two stories that came to mind. And Matt, you'll remember the first story. It was when I just started at Business News. I think I was a month in. Yep. And... uh, Was it Collie? Yeah, it was Collie, wasn't it? It's funny how both of these anecdotes will revolve around Collie in some way. (laughs) It's the heart of our power grid and it's the heart of your anecdotes, John. (laughs) The heart of my career. I should probably go down there at some point. I've never been. Um, There was a press conference from Alana McTiernan about Collie and I forget what the intention of the press conference was. It was was the launch of a presentation thing on industry attraction, Yes, I think, all the opportunities there. Yes, and I think this was before the bicycle parts were announced. Yeah, something like that. could be wrong on that. But anyway, so there's this press conference, and if listeners don't know, these sorts of things, they're important, but they don't really attract the big journalists around town. They attract, you know, fresh journalists who want to get a bit of experience at press conferences. And anyway, I come into this job, and I'm told by senior journalists in the team, you should head on down to this press conference. It'd be good to get some uh, presence, some business news presence at this press conference, to which me as a fresh-faced green journalist goes, yes, of course, I will do that. Anyway, it's Friday, and uh, given it was Friday, I was the dressed... casual Friday. Somewhat casually, in a, uh, if memory serves, it was a fisherman's grey-knit sweater, uh, jeans, mm. slim-fitting blue jeans, uh, and Chelsea boots, mm. brown suede Chelsea boots. So I wasn't uh, unprofessional, but certainly I was uh, feeling a bit casual that day. And I head on down to the press conference uh, with Ms. McTiernan speaking at the Crown Casino. And I rock up 
And uh, suffice to say, no big journalists had turned up for this press conference. In fact, no journalists had turned up to this press conference, <laughs> uh, bar me. Yeah. And uh, I forget the name of um, the minister's media advisor at the time. I reckon it was she, Courtney. Courtney? Well, Courtney was very kind. She said, look, come this way. We'll, we'll get you to uh, speak to the minister. And uh, I went up to Ms McTiernan, who was turned around at the time, and Courtney had said, Minister, his uh, journalist, this is Jordan Murray. And Ms McTiernan spins around and she looks at me and she goes, who are you? Who are you meant to be? I said, I'm, I'm, I'm Jordan Murray. I'm, I'm a journalist from Business News. To which she looked me up and down and she said, what, dress like that? <laughs> which How was good. enormously <laughs> nerve-wracking as a, as a 23-year-old journalist at the time. Um, all is well and good between me and the former minister, I believe, at last year's Christmas party. Was it was the Christmas party the year before that. We shared that anecdote with her and she, really? didn't, she didn't seem to recall it, but uh, yeah. it was very amusing in retrospect. I'll tell you this also, another thing from that, um, that was the Premier's Christmas party, and, and generally you don't repeat stories from there, but this one should be fine because uh, I spoke to, this would have been end of 2021, and I spoke to Alana wearing a gorgeous floral jacket. I just loved it. And I tell you what, the amount of stuff she, she could tell you about hydrogen, she just knew everything that was going yeah. on. It goes to show her absolute passion for the job, Jordan. Sorry. Um, I vividly recall that. Yeah. In fact, it was hard to break into the conversation because you two were just getting on like a house on fire, <laughs> probably because there was hydrogen in those houses. The other story was to do with uh, Mick Murray, who was the sports minister between 2017 and 2021 and held the seat of Collie. Obviously, some very difficult elections in his time. In fact, he contested the seat twice. Uh, before he was elected really? in 2001. So you think about that, 1993 and 1997, having to run a race that he wasn't going to win both times and then come back a third time because he was so intent to win that seat. It uh, obviously <laughs> requires a certain degree of resilience and I admired that in him and it was partly a reason why I wanted to profile him because he was resigning, he was retiring in 2021, I should say. Um, and I went in to um, speak to him and if you've ever met Mick Murray, he's a very down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth type gentleman. And he shook my hand and he said, Jordan, sit down. And I don't believe I asked him a single question in the hour that we spoke. Yeah, really? <laughs> he just delivered the story of his life in perfect detail. And it was fascinating hearing the stories about when he was a shop steward in the 70s. And this was back when industrial disputes uh, boiled down to, if memory serves... There was an issue where the company, the coal mining company that he worked for at the time, wouldn't let them bring sandwiches onto the work site. Really? So he had to fight for their right to have a sandwich right onto the site, yeah. which I thought was just really fascinating. Anyway, he spoke to me about his career in politics for about an hour, um, went through all the stories, and that entire time I was dying for the toilet. Mm. I really needed to pay, but I wasn't going to stop Mick Murray telling me the story of his life. You probably couldn't stop him. I could not stop him even if I tried. <laughs> like a runaway uh, coal train, if that, uh, if that pun even works. Anyway, it uh, was an interesting reflection for me and it was certainly an experience that I wouldn't have had otherwise if not for business news. I don't know about you, Matt. Um, anything particular that, uh, that you're grateful for when you reflect upon your time here at Business News? Oh, there's so much to be grateful for. I mean, I got to um, look very closely at a lot of different industries over the years um, and so I've learned a great, great deal about the state's economy from, you know, right from going to, you know, someone in Balcatta 
making uh, plastic, the, you know those things on a taxi, the light bit up the top which says taxi being made mm. in, in Balcata, I, I think it was, right through to the fashion festival back when we, when we used to do that, uh, having lots of oysters. Uh, <laughs> Delicious. So, you know, it was amazing to get to, to see all different parts of the state's economy. Uh, some of the things I, I'm particularly glad, firstly, I mean, I've always tried to approach issues in a bit of a different way from, from others. Um, always tried to kind of, you, you know, see something and I go, that doesn't sound quite right. And then come up with a hypothesis in my head and kind of test the data against it, test the data against it. So, you know, people will know that I mean, we might talk about inflation, we might not, but we've talked about it plenty in this podcast over the over the past year or two. And I guess it's about trying to, um, you know, there's one opinion out there that people say one thing, but it doesn't really sit right with me or I think there's more to it, so I go out and I, you know, we actually, we do a lot of research for these podcasts and we do a lot of research for, for some of the articles we write too. It's it's not easy to, to do some of this stuff really in depth. Um whether it be, you know, infrastructure investment, looking at what Infrastructure Australia says about the rail lines or the ECU campus, whether it be the Northern Australian Infrastructure Facility, the federal government, which is, you know, was designed for public infrastructure and basically is just subsidising private developments, whether it be funding in arts or health um, or subsidies in renewable energy or whatever else, I guess I've always wanted to ask, can we do these things better, you know? Um, Yes, it's good to get more funding, but as, as we've seen, as, as the years have progressed, I guess you can spend more on things, but it doesn't necessarily ever solve problems. And in the end, maybe you end up with a worker shortage and an inflation problem. What can we do that we're doing now? What can we do differently? What can we do better? I guess that's the question I'm always sort of asking with these things. And particularly, an example that I was just uh, looking at earlier today, because I think it was one of my, one of my favourite stories I've worked on. You know, I'm a business reporter, but when I did the piece on homelessness... Uh, and an inclusive economy for Great for the State a few years ago. And I went out with our photographer at the time, Gabrielle Oliveira, and we went around the streets of Perth at night and we, we tried to speak to people who were homeless. And hearing some of their stories um, was really moving and worthwhile. And I think it's also, it's also a good learning experience because, firstly, these are not easy issues to solve. But also, um, it goes to show that kind of, you know, you've got two sides of politics that both have views and they're both right in a way and they're both wrong in a way. I mean, when you talk to someone... Um, you know, when you talk to people and, and, um, and you hear their stories, you hear, oh, okay, you know, some of the things you say, oh, gee, you know, the response might be X, but then they'll say something else and you'll go, oh, actually, the, maybe the right solution is something totally different. So it was a really worthwhile experience and I'm glad we did that. And I think, to be honest with you, at least at that time, I didn't feel like journalists were paying enough attention to actually on the ground talking to people. Because um, remember, there was all that coverage about the homelessness crisis, but it was kind of, it felt like it was all kind of very... Um, from a distance kind of just hurling, you know? Well, because I recall at the time there used to be this tenor of debate that was almost, and I, and I found it quite sickening to be frank, and I'm not going to name names, but there was almost this tone of, you know, these people are a problem. Mm. They're disgusting. They're making the city look filthy. And you have to look at the people who have found themselves in this situation and think, you know, that could be me. Mm. You know, there's, there's nothing stopping me and someone else I know ending up in that situation. So I think the the way in which the, this issue was spoken about as an almost amenity problem really uh, took away the dignity of these people who were affected by such a horrible issue. Mm. So I'm, gl I'm glad we got to do that. Um, and, you know, doing those uh, walk-arounds um, can be really valuable. So we talked about the, the homelessness example, but also people will know that I, if, you, if you've been a regular reader, you'll know that I was very big on the whole Yagan Square thing. And I like to say that I was big on it um, really before it became, you know, it started to get a lot of coverage elsewhere. Business News was on top of it. Um, and I used to go down there and walk around and, and chat to, to as many people as I could. 
Um, and, the, you know, Yagen Square just needed to be highlighted. What an absolute failure that was of management. And people will say the design was poor, and I get that. But, boy, when you talked to the businesses that were there and they would say, oh, we want to advertise, we want to put out flyers, we want to put out an A-frame, and Development WA won't let us. Or we want to tell people that we're here and the Development WA isn't responding or isn't doing anything about it. Um, obviously, you know, there's a, the world's come a long way since then and the whole place is being refurbished. But I don't think it ever needed to be the case that that place ended up the way that it did. And it's a great sadness that it did. Um, and I wonder if it was run by, you know, if it was a private shopping centre developer, they probably would have invested a lot more into it. Whereas you feel like you, you got the feeling with with Yagen Square that it was kind of the government had all this other stuff it was dealing with and it was kind of the forgotten child um, and I'll never forget you know they used to say the, the, the tenants they used to say no one knows that we're here and when we have you know a food van session um, in the little park across the across the way which is now going to be the ECU campus it actually doesn't help because it means more of the people that would come in here actually go to the food vans and that was even more frustrating for them so um the, the other point about that I guess is that um uh, it wasn't just Yagen Square. Obviously, there was that was the worst example. But getting around the city over the years and speaking to retailers and seeing visibly about some of the problems we've had with retail vacancies um, and all of that uh, has been a really worthwhile thing. Uh, and uh, one other one um, from a little while back, from the end of 2021, Belmont Park. One deal, ten years, no development. Uh, worth you know, if you if you get the time, worth going back and having a read of that, whether you're interested in racing or not, because there's. There was plenty to say about that, the deal to sell off all the land around the Belmont Park Racecourse and, and the fact that not very much has happened there since. So, I mean, there have been so many stories that I've poured my heart into and a lot of, um, you know, if you, if you want to really do this sort of stuff well and make an impact, I feel like you've got to really invest the time and it can't just be, it's not just a nine to five gig, right? You've got to get out there on weekends or nights and, and work and talk to people and do that little bit of extra work looking at whatever report or, or doing whatever extra, um, you know, searching through documents, you know, uh, and you can find real gems like that. But uh, I've been grateful to be able to do it. And I've always loved doing this job because you can make an impact on the state and you can you can try to make um, Western Australia and Australia a, a better place. And so it's been uh, it's been a great pleasure to be able to do that at Business News, Jordan. I'm uh, I'm grateful for it. Indeed, and I do want to just quickly, before we wrap up today, talk about, and I'm surprised you didn't even mention this, you're an award-winning journalist, Matthew, <laughs> and you've won two pretty significant awards, both for your uh, online coverage and your magazine coverage, and I hope you know the articles that I'm talking about, because I would just like to ask you about those two particular award-winning stories. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, you know, it's funny, I've actually had a, had a brain freeze as to what they were. So one of them was the was energy, was reformed to the energy grid, and that's another thing. I mean, gee, I've done so much on the energy transition in the last nine years, but I love it. I love writing about energy and the energy transition because it is so complicated and it's not like the market for gallons of milk um, because if you go to the fridge one day at, at Woolworths and there's no milk, you'll live. You go and buy it another day. But if the power grid doesn't have enough power for half a second, that's it. The whole system collapses, right? So it's an incredibly complicated thing and it's not easy to manage the transition. But yeah, so in the context of that transition, it was um, I was looking at uh, the uh, the contestability threshold. So can we bring down people's power prices by having more competition? Because at the moment, Synergy's got a monopoly. Uh, the government's got a monopoly, particularly for households, also for small businesses. Would bringing in competition uh, bring down prices? So that was um, really, I was really grateful to win an award for that. And if you look at some of the other things that have won awards over the years, like when Gareth Parker did the, um, he got the Royal Commission into um, into Crown, uh, 
massive, massive stories. And I've, I've always felt like mine didn't quite, uh, wasn't, wasn't anywhere near that level. But Imposter syndrome, Matt. <laughs> well, but I tell you what, maybe the billionaire battles uh, from earlier this year. Um, and uh, then there's, the other one was environmental approvals. D- big, huge delays, b- huge delays to, to projects, hundreds and hundreds of days um, of delays to big major projects in WA because of, um, uh, you know, ap- approvals taking so long. So that was a really worthwhile that was a really worthwhile issue, and, and again, that was some something where I had to I had to work late nights to go through and get all those documents and everything else. But it was you know someone had to do it, uh, and I'm glad I did. And then just actually to, to go forward a step, I didn't say this, but you know uh, the stuff I've done in the last six months, the billionaire battles, and the the construction industry crisis. Uh, really glad to have had the opportunity to do that as well because those are really important issues in WA. Now, Jordan, I know you want to talk a bit about um, the podcast and how it all came together because you were the you were one of the pilots of that process. Indeed, I was, and it did win an award. It at did the American Alliance of Business Publishers. That's right. It was the silver in the pod, best podcast category, and we're shooting for gold this year. Good on you. I won't know the results, unfortunately, because I won't be here. But nevertheless, <laughs> yes. No, I did uh, pilot this to an extent. I think the commercial sport had to come first before we really got it off the ground but when we did I remember Sean had taken me aside and said look this is the this is the goal it'd be good if you could look after this process for us and I said yep absolutely happy to do that and I think at the time we just talked about doing a headlines only podcast and so it would have actually been in its original intent a very small product mm. would have been I, I would have thought about five minutes and the idea was that you could just digest the daily headlines which would otherwise appear uh, on the website and I was quite intent on adding a bit more value to it than just that and I think you know people are familiar broadly with the products that are offered by the likes of the New York Times now by Schwartz Media uh, in which you supplement the podcast with news with some analysis and particularly drawing on the analysis that we already produce for our fortnightly magazine uh, and getting journalists to really explain a little bit more about why they wanted to write a story maybe give some insights that they weren't able to offer in their article uh, in question and so I went about putting together a, a demo for that episode and I recall Jacinta Burton was here at the time and she read the headlines for a certain day into that and I spoke to you Matt about an article you'd written uh, regarding the Liberal Party and uh, its rebuild after the 2021 election which was a fascinating story amazingly sourced as well you spoke to a lot of different people for that particular article it was very comprehensive and the discussion that we had was so long, and I remember we took it back <laughs> a bit to like Sean. Today. A bit like today. And we took it back to Sean, and Sean had, the feedback from him was, we need to make that shorter. Mm. People aren't going to want to listen to <laughs> something that's that long. Mm. And obviously we took back that uh, advice, we took it on board, and it informed the initial run of episodes about close of business. But I guess over time, as we dig into issues, it's obviously meant that the podcast has run a little bit longer than we might have otherwise intended in the first place. But it appears as if listeners do want that longer form analysis and they have had the patience to stick with us and they've really felt evidently rewarded by what it is that we have to say. And I guess coming back to things that we're grateful for here at Business News, I'm very grateful for the opportunity I've had to present this podcast and to steward the format, which should remain the same as a, after I leave, and really been grateful for this opportunity that I've been able to have pretty much every Friday since we've started the podcast. There's been a few interruptions where we've been on leave or we haven't had the time to sit down and dissect an issue, but we've had some really prominent listeners 
who've commented on the work that we've produced. We've had uh, some not-so-prominent listeners from members of the public throughout Perth who've been really thrilled that we're able to offer this podcast to people free of charge on Spotify and SoundCloud. Mm. And that's been really affirming. It's good to know that there are people who are getting value from this podcast who maybe aren't from within the business community but would really like that sophisticated level of uh, analysis and research. So, Matt, I don't know if you have any other closing remarks before we finish off today's episode. Yeah, just a couple of things. So firstly, the Friday thing, I should should credit, Jordan, this was you. I mean, you just came to me one Friday and said, oh, you know, we need one more thing. Why don't we do one on politics? Um, and maybe you were a bit tepid about doing it every Friday, but I was like, yeah, let's keep doing it. I love this. And you were probably like, all right, Matt, well, if you want to rant every Friday. But I'm, I'm glad you did because it's been a very worthwhile endeavour doing these Fridays. Absolutely. And the other one is just more broadly, I mean, you know, Mark Byer, Mark Pownell, Sean Cowan, very grateful, um, tremendous people that we've learned a lot from while we've been here. Uh, it was a pleasure to work with Gary Adsett and also um, you mentioned JB, two journalists who I learned a lot from, but certainly um, the two Marks and Sean have helped this business grow tremendously over the last nine years and I'm uh, very optimistic for the future of business news in the years ahead that it's going to keep making a positive impact in our community. And of course I met my current partner Jess Massioni at uh, Business News. She no longer works here, but I'm eternally grateful for Business News for that. Uh, I'm grateful to Mark Byer, who is now a senior editor here, uh, for giving me the opportunity to work here in the first place. And of course, to Charles Kabelke, our chief executive, and Elton Schwartz, our chair, uh, for investing so much in the business and stewarding the business to the point where it's at now. I can remember when we started on Northbridge, and Mm -hmm. I love Northbridge, but obviously that's not the most (laughs) high-end part of town. And we've moved to St George's Terrace now, next to Council House on one side. Uh, the courts on that side as well. And then further up the street, you've got Parliament and everything in between are Mm. key decision makers in this city. So obviously the business has evolved tremendously uh, in the time that we've been here. And I like to think, I'd hope to think, uh, we've played some part in that with the work that we've produced. In the meantime, you can read more coverage at businessnews.com.au or you can listen to Mark My Words, which is also available. And Matt, you are on the latest episode of Mark My Words, so you can also hear uh, insights from Matt McKenzie on that too. In the meantime, signing off, it's Jordan Murray. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.